Let's jump into our passage this morning, Romans chapter 10, and let's read God's Word together. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to this church that he doesn't know, but he wants them to know this desire that he has for missions, that is, preaching the gospel where people haven't heard it yet. Let's read what he has to say. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of God. Now, you guys might not be familiar with this person, but he did write over 80 books. Um, his name is J. Oswald Sanders. J. Oswald Sanders was the director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship. So he was a man who oversaw sending missionaries, sending people to go and preach about Jesus into some of the remotest places on earth. And he was giving a lecture one time and talking about one instance where he had sent a man into India, and he didn't have a whole very sophisticated strategy. This man would go around from village to village in India, and all he would do is stand in the market square. He would lift up his hands, and he'd have a Bible in his hands, and he'd just start declaring the truth about who Jesus is. That's all that he would do. And he cites this one instance where this man had traveled almost 20 miles in the hot weather, getting blisters on his feet, going through this agonizing walk just to get to this village. And right as the sun is going down, he enters the village. He starts declaring the message of Jesus. He starts telling them how they could be saved. And right as people were about to listen, one person shouted out, started mocking him and deriding him. And then the whole entire city started joining in in the mocking and derision. So this man, he was, you know, completely exhausted. He had just walked 20 miles. So he goes and he lays down underneath a tree just outside the town and he's about to fall asleep. He takes off his shoes and he realizes that his feet are bloody. He's got blisters all over his feet. And just as he's about to fall, fall asleep, he's woken up. And there's this large man who's from the city that he had just left. And the man spoke up and said, we came out to see what kind of man you are. And we, when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you must be a holy man. We want you to tell us what you were willing to do to get blistered for feet, on your feet, just to come and talk to us. And so as the story goes, this man shared the gospel, and countless people actually believed in Jesus. 
Just because this one man was willing to walk 20-some miles to a place he'd never been to share the message of Jesus and to get blistered feet. And now a question that I think we have to ask ourselves, and this is especially prevalent for us who live in the 21st century in the West, is this. Why would somebody be willing to go through such humiliation, such derision, such pain, such tribulation to tell others about Jesus? Or another way to maybe put this, a slightly more direct way of putting this, is do we even need to send missionaries at all? Do we need to even engage in missions as people of God to send people to remote villages like India or inland China or Papua New Guinea to hear about the gospel, the message of Jesus? You put it this way, is is missions even important? And I think we have to really ask ourselves that question because at least in our culture, the need for missions is often actually treated with suspicion, sometimes even hostility. So this comes from Joel Klein. Joel Klein is a political commentator for Time magazine. He wrote this article in 2007, and he was addressing this concept of missions and how dangerous he thought that it was. He said this, the concept of missions is deeply problematic. Implicit in the concept of missions is the idea that people are sent to convert and evangelize others. It's this idea that promotes the idea that some religions are inferior and some religions are superior. That some religions, namely Christianity, are better than others. And he concludes, to believe that missions is necessary makes one a religious extremist. So that's not good press for missions, by the way. (laughs) But you can see what Klein is saying, right? He's saying, hey, this impulse to go and tell other people about Jesus, that actually makes us think that we are better, superior to other people who, as a result, are inferior. And that we are actually bending people toward religious extremism if we engage in missions. So I'm going to ask us this morning, there's an open question, is missions important? Should we, as a church, reach out and actually engage in sharing the message of Jesus with others? And to explore that, I'm going to look at Romans chapter 10, the passage that we just read, and we're going to see Paul actually sees there is a radical need for missions. And he puts that in plain terms in verses 1 through 13. So there's a radical need for missions, and then he also unpacks for us in verses 14 and 15, God's radical solution for missions. So let's explore that together. First, the radical need for missions, and Paul actually just begins right at the source of the problem. He begins in verse 2 by saying this, for I bear them witness. He's talking about people who do not believe in Jesus here. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And I want you to notice in this passage just two things that Paul's saying. The first is he's saying there's a radical need for missions not because people are irreligious, not because people are unspiritual, and not because people are not sincerely devoted to their faith. People, according to Paul, have a zeal for God. People have a desire and a devotion to follow God. So Paul says, hey, that's not the problem. People are zealous for God. And just to kind of check this, by the way, I I did a stat check on this. Paul's point here is borne out statistically because the precise number is not known, but available estimates estimates show that there are about 4,300 religions in the world. 
And that's not counting the various sects in all of those religions. So what we're talking about is people generally are a religious people. People generally have created over 10,000 some odd religions when you consider all the sects. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you saw that even in cultures like the United States, which is considered a secular culture that really only three to five percent of people identify as atheists. So even in a secular culture, people believe in God. People are zealous for God. So that's what Paul says. Hey, the problem is not that people are irreligious. People have zeal for God. The problem is, is that zeal, verse two, he says, is not according to knowledge. Or as he puts it in verse three, he says, people are ignorant. He says, people are ignorant. That's the problem, according to Paul. The radical need for missions is ignorance. And now i got to be clear here. Follow along with me. When Paul says people are ignorant, what he means, or what he does not mean, is that people are ignorant of the existence of God. So take, for instance, what Paul said at the beginning of Romans. Paul actually addresses this. Paul says, everybody knows of God's existence, even the deepest skeptic. Paul, to begin the letter, wrote, For what can be known about God is plain to them. That's the unbelieving world. For what can be known about God is plain to the unbelieving world. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. So, You hear what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying creation is a lot like a really good musical composition, right? So when you hear Mozart or when you hear Bach or you hear Beethoven or you hear Vivaldi, naturally what comes to your mind is there is a masterful composer behind this music. And in the same way, Paul is saying creation, when we look at creation, the things that have been made, as he says, The natural question that should arise for us is, there must be a great creator behind this. That there is a creator who is invisible, but a creator who has divine power and a divine nature, who is altogether unlike us and so powerful that he created everything that exists. And so I find this kind of humorous, by the way. Maybe you've heard something like this. I saw a Newsweek article that had the headline, Christianity versus Science. And, you know, oftentimes what those articles are getting at is that people believe that as scientific discovery kind of increases, then the reasonableness of faith decreases. So that as people, scientists find out more and more about the earth, then really our reasons to believe in God begins to diminish. But I want you to hear these words. This is from Francis Collins. Francis Collins is a world-renowned geneticist. He's the director of the National Institute of Health. He's a scientist, and he wrote, quote, When we look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if the universe knew we scientists were coming. There are 15 constants scientists refer to. The gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants of the universe were off by even one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, The universe as we know it now could not have actually come to the point where we see it today. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. 
And now that's a mouthful. But in essence, here's what Collins is saying. Collins is saying there are these constants of the universe, one of them being gravity, for instance. What he's saying is if the gravitational force in the universe wasn't, was one one millionth of a degree weaker or stronger, then life would not exist. That's how precise it is. Or I'll give you another example. Take the speed of light, which is another one of the constants. I looked up what the speed of light is, by the way. It is 299,792,458 meters per second. That's the speed of light. If the speed of light was one one millionth of a kilometer per hour less or more than it actually is, planets wouldn't even exist, let alone any life form, not even pond scum. And so that led the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy when they were looking at this. They said, quote, the apparent probability of all the necessary conditions sufficient to allow for the formation of planets, let alone life, coming together just by chance is utterly outrageously tiny. This is Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle, who is an atheist British astronomer, said a common sense interpretation of the facts of the universe suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. I'd say that's an underestimation, by the way. And he says, as well as the chemistry and biology, the numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put the conclusion almost beyond question. And now you might be a skeptic here and you might be saying, well, hold on, hold on. Isn't there still a chance, though? So, yeah, the chance that everything that we see, everything that's in the universe, came together just by mere probability and chance. Even though it's infinitesimally small, isn't there a possibility? Isn't there still a chance? And mathematically, yes. Physically, yes. Just as there is a chance, if we're playing poker and we deal a thousand hands, I get a royal flush every single hand for a thousand straight hands. That's about the odds that you can expect something like the universe to come out of nothing. So that's why Fred Hoyle says a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that behind the creation is a creator. So when all humanity, Paul says, is ignorant, what he's saying is not that they're ignorant of God's existence. That's indisputable. You look at creation and you know there's a creator. Paul says, no, what we are ignorant of, and here's why we need missions, and here's what makes the radical need for missions so pressing, is because people are ignorant of God's righteousness. So take a look again at Romans chapter 10. Look again at verse 2. Paul says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... They seek to establish their own, and they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you see, what Paul is saying is people are ignorant of the righteousness of God, meaning that they actually underestimate, all people underestimate just how good, just how holy, just how righteous, and just how perfect God actually is. They underestimate that. And as a result, Paul says, of underestimating how righteous God really is, the tragic part of this is that we seek to establish our own righteousness and do not submit to God's. So you see what Paul's saying. He's saying we underestimate God's righteousness and we overestimate our ability to be good and righteous before God. He says that's the great problem. 
Now, I used to do this thing when I was in Nashville where I used to do it a lot in Nashville, and I've only done it a couple times here, where I would go out on the street and I would just try and engage people in conversations about Jesus. And I did this recently at uh, Colorado School of Mines, which is a university that's in Golden, just north of here. And what we would do is with this organization, Ratio Christi, we'd set up this whiteboard. And on this whiteboard, we would just write provocative questions in order to get people to stop and just start asking you know, interact with us. Some of those questions would be like, how do we know truth exists? Do you believe there's ultimate truth? Well, one time we put down this question and it said, if heaven exists and if God exists, who will go to heaven? And this is purely anecdotal. I don't have any concrete statistics for this, but we interacted with different people of different backgrounds, genders, ethnicities, religious traditions, even ages. We talked to professors and administrators. And again, this is anecdotal, but I would say 98% of people said, good people go to heaven. That was the baseline answer. Good people go to heaven. The problem with this is that many of us fail to ask the follow-up question Because if you think that good people go to heaven, the follow-up question is this, well, how good is good enough? That's the real question. How good does God expect a person to be to let them into heaven? There's this famous parable, it's a religious parable, and it goes like this. A man dies, he goes to the pearly gates, he's standing for judgment, God approaches him and says, why should I let you into heaven? And there's an angel there overseeing the whole thing. And the man says, well... I don't know, I haven't been really good. Uh, You know that God. And so he says, yeah, you know you haven't. And he brings out this list of all these bad things that a person has done. And it could have filled volumes of a book. And they go through each one in tedious detail. And then he says, okay, let's pull out the good deeds. And he pulls out the good deeds. And on there is, you know, not too many remarkable things, but one deed stands out. That one time there was this sick and dying old woman who this man took up into his arms and brought her to a hospital. And he said, well, that's all I can really base it on. Uh, if, if, if the standard is to be good enough to get into heaven, that's really the only good thing that he's done. And the angel raises his hand and it says, well, well, hold on. No, notice what else happened in that one good deed. Not only did you bless the old lady, but you blessed the ground that she walked on. So the angel picks it up and puts it on the scales of justice. And his good deeds start to, you know, catch up with his bad deeds. And the angel says, oh, yeah, and the air that she breathed as well. Let's put that on there because that'll further scale or put the scales back of justice to even. And they're just about even. They're not sure if he's going to get in. So finally, the angel says, and yes, look at what it did to your own heart, too. And he took that good deed, put it on the scales of justice, and his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds. He's a good person and he gets into heaven. And that sounds great, doesn't it? Let's get a collective sigh of, oh, right? It sounds really sentimental and great. But what's wrong with that? Well, a couple of things. Reason with me here. Imagine you're standing trial in a U.S. district court, U.S. criminal court, and you're standing defense before kidnapping. You kidnapped. And the judge says, what is your plea? And you say, not guilty. And the judge says, why? We have in, you know, indefensible proof that you have kidnapped. And say your defense is this, well, I know I kidnapped that once. I know I did. I, I admit it. I did it. I did it. But I had 80 opportunities to kidnap before that, and I never kidnapped that kid once in those 80 times. Therefore, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Therefore, you should pardon me. Now, what would the verdict come back there? Guilty. Why? Because one infraction 
means a guilty verdict. It doesn't matter if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, no matter how good your good deeds are. We know this with our kids too, don't we? So I have, oh, I was about to say five kids. <laughs> Thank goodness. I have four kids and they have a, <laughs> had a heart attack there. Excuse me. Um, I have four kids and every morning before, you know, they come upstairs, this is specifically my older kids, they have a list of five things that they have to do, you know, get their water bottle, make their bed, put on their clothes, put their dirty laundry away and make sure their room's clean. Now, when they come up, oftentimes what happens, they say, hey, I forgot my water bottle or hey, I forgot to put my trash away or hey, I didn't come up with clothes on. That's weird. Um, they won't have a really great defense if I say, hey, go ahead and go put your clothes on for school. They would say, well, I did three out of the five, dad. We realize that that doesn't hold water, does it? And so, again, reason with me here. Let me ask you this. If a U.S. criminal court acknowledges that one violation of the law means punishment and our own children know that three out of five doesn't cut it, then why do we surmise that God would have a lesser standard of righteousness and a lesser standard of judgment? Paul says the reason we do think that way is precisely right here. He says that we are ignorant of the righteousness of God. and We seek to establish our own. We underestimate the righteousness and the goodness of God, and we overestimate just how righteous and good we can actually be. I love how Jesus illustrates this perfectly, by the way. Have you noticed the type of people that are attracted to Jesus? This comes from uh, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is calling Matthew to be his disciple. Matthew was a tax collector, a person who had been utterly despised during their time, as well as today. Nobody likes tax collectors, right? I'm sorry if you work for the IRS in here. Jesus calls Matthew, and we're told, when the Pharisees saw this, these were the good people, the moral people, the upright people. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Rarely, Rarely in the Gospels do we see Jesus spending time with the moral, the upright, the people who are good, the decent people of his day. No, Jesus spent most of his time with the disreputable, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sick and the poor. Not because those people are any more virtuous than the rich people and the good people and the upright people. No, it's because it's often the disreputable who know that they're sick and need a physician. And it's often the sinners who know that they need a savior. When I was in Nashville, we used to do this uh, mission trip and we would go to the south side of Chicago uh, every other year. And oftentimes, as was the case, it was very, very difficult for parents to kind of wrap their head around why we might do something like that. And rightfully so. I mean, they would read headlines of how many people got murdered in the south side of Chicago right before we're about to go head up there with a bus full of kids and, you know, go spend some time in the inner city. And what would often happen is parents would get up and they'd, they'd be really concerned. They'd ask questions like, how do I know my kid's going to be safe? How do I know they're going to make it back all right? And we gave them no promises. But somebody would stand up and they'd say, no, these are the people who need to hear it the most. These are the people who need Jesus the most. They would say, these people are surrounded by drugs. They have kids who have absentee parents, poor schools. They're enveloped by crime. These kids need Jesus most. 
But when you look at the life of Jesus, you take seriously what Paul is saying here. The people that need Jesus most are the good people. The people that need Jesus most are moral people. Not the disrepute, but the decent, honorable people, because it's those people, dare I say people like us, Deer Creek, who are most in danger of being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish our own. Oftentimes it's good people who think that they can be good enough, and it's they who are in most trouble. And as if that weren't bad enough, notice what Paul says in verse 3. He continues. Paul says at the end of verse 3, saying, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. And this is what makes this so tragic, is because people are blind to their need to be perfect before God's sight, they fail to submit to the righteousness of God, meaning they don't receive the free gift of righteousness that Jesus has earned on their behalf. They don't put their trust in Jesus because they think at the end of the day, well, I'll be good enough. That's why there is a radical need for missions because religion, all world religions, fall into this trap. All world religions say we accumulate a righteous goodness before God and on the basis of that, God accepts us. It is only Christianity, the one religion out of 4,300 that says, no, Jesus lives a good and righteous life and accepts us based on faith in that. And not only that, but it's the only religion that says God was willing to come and die for those who are unrighteous. So the need for missions is not because we think we're somehow superior to other religions. We're not. The need for missions is we have a superior Savior who has a righteousness that none of us can earn. None of us. That's why Paul makes it very clear in verse 4. Take a look again. Verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The righteousness that we try and earn never measures up. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who just simply places their faith in him. That's how you're good enough for God. That's why there's a radical need for missions. Now I can hear the objections already. Because this is an objectionable and a very radical belief. Because some of you might be saying, well, what about good people? After all, I live with, I work with, I even go shopping with and spend time with people who are good people. People who try their best. People who sincerely follow God. People who go to church even. And are you telling me? Are you telling me that those good people are not saved just because they don't believe in Jesus and the people who are bad, the people who are bad just because they believe in Jesus, somehow they're saved, somehow they're righteous before God? And if you're asking that question, then you're finally getting it. Because that was the same exact question that Paul would have faced during his day for the Jewish people who lived during his time. Notice verse 30 of chapter 9, just the passage right above this. Paul is saying, here's how it works. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, that's bad people, right? People who didn't have God's law, people who didn't want to follow God, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's just by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. 
but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. See, the message of Jesus is placing our faith in Jesus and receiving the grace of Jesus, his righteousness, which makes us good enough for God. That's why Paul quotes Isaiah here. He says Jesus is this stone of stumbling. He says he's the great rock of offense. What he's saying is Jesus is like this great stone, which you will either stand on in order to be lifted up to stand before God perfectly, or you will stumble over thinking you can be as righteous as him. And it will be offensive because you'll say, I thought I was a good person. Salvation is all about Jesus. It's wholly found in him and trusting in him and his righteousness alone. So Paul says, hey, Jewish people, you should have known this. The the Old Testament speaks to this very clearly. Verse 6, he says, But the righteousness based on faith says, and he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 31 here, he says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. See, he's saying, hey, you don't have to climb into the heavens doing these great works in order to be accepted by God and attain salvation. No, Jesus has come down for you. You don't have to descend into the depths to attain it. Work yourself to the death in order to be good enough for God. He says, no, Christ died for your sins. He was resurrected from the dead for you. And then Paul puts together this string of quotes from the Old Testament to say, this is how a person is saved. This is why people need to hear and have missionaries because what does the word say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the radical message of Jesus. Simply trusting and resting in Jesus. Not thinking that you're righteous enough to stand before God. But pleading, God, give me a righteousness I do not deserve. Give me the righteousness of Jesus. Give me faith in him. So that's the radical need for missions. That if people do not hear that message, they will stand before God with a righteousness of their own that will lead to their shame. That is, a, they will trip over the rock of offense. They will trip over Jesus. And so lastly, in the last closing moments here, what's God's radical solution then? Well, Paul says the radical solution, he puts this chain together. He asks four rhetorical questions. Paul's saying, hey, if what I just said is true, and he's quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32, he says... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, if that's true, then, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So what's God's radical solution? To send to send people, to send men to go and preach the word so that people would hear the word of God, so that people would believe the word of God, so that they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus for righteousness. And you know what makes this statement even more powerful is read them as negatives. 
Read those verses as negative. If we do not send, nobody will preach. If we do not preach, nobody will hear. If nobody hears, nobody will believe. If nobody believes, nobody will call on Jesus. If nobody calls on Jesus, nobody will be saved. None. God's radical solution is to send people into the world to reach out and tell people the message of Jesus. Now, some people hear this, and they will be induced to guilt and say, and I've heard preachers say this, there are missionaries, and everyone's a missionary. Meaning there's real missionaries who go out, but everybody's a missionary, and and you need to discern whether or not you're called to be a missionary. Friends, Paul was a missionary, and there are men God is raising up to be missionaries. Do we need to take our part in the Great Commission? Yes. But this is not guilt to say, maybe God's calling me to Kazakhstan. He probably isn't. (laughs) Or he might be. But here's the thing. Do not feel guilt that you are not going. The point is, we as a church, Deer Creek Church, are called to send. Send people. Send resources. Send people to preach the message of Jesus. Because that's the only way people will be saved. I think... uh, Allow me here. Fedor Dostoevsky, he's an author. Uh, He wrote this brilliant book, Brother Karamazov. And he said in his time, this was mid-19th century Russia. He said in his time, there was a scenario going on which I think is very close to our time. At that time, right before the revolution, the Russian Revolution, Dostoevsky said Russia was really at a crossroads where the church was really atrophying And the state was kind of taking the place that the church had always assumed throughout culture. And in order to illustrate this, Dostoevsky gives two real speeches at the beginning of this book. One by the antagonist, his name's Ivan. Ivan is a skeptic. Ivan is an atheist. Ivan is pretty brazen in the idea that he wants the church to be demised. And in his speech, he is at a monastery. He's talking to these men where only faith exists in this small town. And in his speech, he predicts that everywhere everywhere in Russia and in the West, the church will atrophy and faith will disappear among the people. And as the church shrinks, the state will take the place of feeding the hungry, helping the poor, caring for the needy, giving purpose to the lonely, and bringing justice to the criminal. And as all the monks look at Ivan in disbelief that he could be so brazen as to preach that message in a monastery, one man steps up. His name's Father Zosima, and he's kind of the hero of the beginning parts of the book. He speaks up and says, quote, But what you forget is that the church can do something that no state can do. The church is a mother, tender and loving. The church is the only place where the wrongdoer can find forgiveness and compassion. If the wrongdoer returns to society, society will excommunicate him. But the church never loses communion with the criminal as a dear and still beloved son of God. See, that's something only the church can do, is be the place for the wrongdoer, be the place for the sinner, be the place for the crime breaker. Only the church can do that and send men to do that and tell people they are still beloved children of God because of the death of Jesus. Uh, We were talking with this church planter actually this last week. His name is Jason Tippett. He's planting a church in Buena Vista, Colorado. It's a church of about 60 people, very small, but he says being in that small community, his goal is to to meet two new people every single week. That's it, just two new people every single week. And he says he's created his best friendship with one person that he met. This person was a convicted sex offender. 
And he says now he has a calendared event with him every single week on Wednesday at noon where he walks with this person. He says it's the highlight of his week. Who but the church can do that? Because the church, like a tender, loving mother, tells the wrongdoer, tells the criminal, you can have forgiveness. You can know the goodness of God. There's one thing that can impede us reaching out, though. One thing, and Dostoevsky points it out. He says the church will fail because he says, you know, in reality, in many cases, there are already no more churches at all. And what remains are just churchmen and splendid church buildings. So the question we all have to ask ourselves is, what do we want to be? Do we want to be splendid churchmen and splendid church buildings? Or do we want to reach out and tell people the message that Jesus... <laughs> can give you a righteousness and a love that you can never experience anywhere else. Only the church can do that. As we close, I just want to announce a couple of exciting changes because we're talking about missions, reaching out. As a church, we really do want to have a new emphasis around sending men out. So just a couple of things to communicate that we're really excited for. First is kind of our emphasis in missions. First change, at Deer Creek, all of our missions giving, which is over 10% of our budget, all of our missions giving now is going to establish churches to equip and fund church plants both internationally and domestically. So you see that d domestically. Let me talk about that really quick. Elevate Hope Centennial, uh, which was Brett Weston, who was at Deer Creek Church five years ago. He came here, was raised up, you know, kind of helped garner support to grab a group of people that would be his core team, and they launched a church in Centennial, Colorado. Today, today is their two-year anniversary. How cool is that? And on their two-year anniversary, they get to celebrate nearly a hundred people who are joining their church. A hundred new people that, for whatever reason, have decided they want to know the message of Jesus. Cool, exciting stuff going on. They also hire two full-time staff, an assistant pastor and a worship pastor. So God is raising up people in the Centennial area. Many of you have uh, had the privilege of meeting JP and Carrie Ann Watson. JP, Carrie Ann, can you guys stand up, you and your family? The rest of the kids, it looks like, are out. But JP is planning to plant a church in 2023 in the Inglewood area of Colorado in the fall of 2023. By the way, I came as a church planter uh, three years ago here, and uh, Deer Creek asked me to stay on. When I look at JP, I'm reminded of why I would have been a terrible church planter, <laughs> because he's going to be such a good ch church planter. He actually loves people, which uh, <laughs> is amazing to see. I'm serious. He has people in their ho his house all the time. I mean, they're doing so many amazing things that it's just shame on me, really. It's really hard to watch, um, but so great to watch at the same time. Um, and here's our hope. Domestically, we want to see people sent out of Deer Creek Church every single year. We want to bring in church planters and send them out with people to new places of Denver to plant churches. Because you know what? The church can only be the place that sends. And we need more church planters. So that's domestically what we're doing internationally as well. We have four new missions partners. And we've kind of come under the philosophy that, hey, we want to help them as much as possible and do a lot for four people than rather than do just a little bit for, you know, a hundred people. So with these four men, the first place that we're really targeting is the United Kingdom. If you know about the United Kingdom, it used to be the great pillar of Christianity in the West. Now, statistics say that 8% of the United Kingdom goes to church. When you look at really those statistics, though, it's really about 3% are really actively involved and would consider themselves evangelical Christians. 
So we need churches in the UK, and we're supporting two church planters there. The first is Andy Young, and he's planting Oxford Presbyterian Church, which is in the city of Oxford. Now, Oxford only has 30,000 people, but you've heard of it, haven't you? That's because it's a major university there, people from all around the world. In fact, he's uh, sent me a couple stories of people who came from a Muslim background and have been baptized and have believed in Jesus just because that church is there. There's also another man, his name is Jaunty Rhodes. Jaunty is planting Christ Central, which is in Leeds, which is the third largest city in the UK. And he's already planted one church before, so we were going to get a twofer out of him, you know? He's already planted one church before, so he's gone to Leeds, and he's establishing a church there. They've already garnered enough support to actually bring on a church planting resident. They're sending him here to the United States to study for seminary, where he's ultimately going to go back, and then he's going to plant a church himself. How cool is that? But that's only two of them. That's where Christianity was. We also want to go to places where Christianity has never been, and that's in India, And I would share the name of our two church planters there, but we literally can't because they've told us that the hostility toward Christianity and the threat of knowing, people knowing the work that they're doing there is just too grave. So I'll just tell you one person, the person who was kind of the lead of this, his name was Jay. We're just going to call him Jay. A few years ago, he went into India and it's out of this church that he built up that these two new church planters are going to plant in Chennai, India, which is 11 million people, and in Bangalore, which is 13 million people. Jay, after being there for several years, was denied his visa. He had to come back to the United States for two years in order to clear that out because hostility toward Christians was just getting too hot. So they, wouldn't deny, so they denied him his visa and wouldn't allow him to stay there. But as you think of Chennai and Bangalore, that's 24 million people. Can you guess how many people believe in Jesus there? Less than 1%. Less than 1%. So we're committed to this. We want 10% of our budget and anything else that we want to give toward it to go to establishing new churches because our hope, our hope is that we can be a church that sends, that reaches out, And gives people the only message that can save the message of Jesus. And we hope that just like the guy at the beginning of the story who went to India, that these new church plant partners, JP and any new person that we bring on, we pray that people will hear their message. And they will say, like Paul said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. We need people who will go. So we want to be a church who sends and reach out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent us the greatest gift, the gift of your own Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, who sacrificed for us, who died for us, who so infinitely loves us that we can't even comprehend how vast, how wide, how long, and how deep is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for him. And God, we pray that as an overflow of that love, you would give us a heart for, a compelling desire for sending missionaries out into places where the gospel has not been heard, where people need to hear the message, and where people need to come to saving faith in Jesus. God, we pray, thank you that you have made us, your church, really crooked, sinful people ourselves who do not love that you are using people like us, changing our hearts to love more and more people who you love. And would you make us committed people who want to be part of the solution, to plant churches, to send men, and to see the gospel and the good news of Jesus and his reign 
rain from as far as the east is from the is from the west, and his glory would cover creation like the sea covers the oceans. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.